Everyone knows Law Matters was created to open the lines of communication between law enforcement and the community. Over the course of the last year, we have become painfully aware of the very negative headlines national media projected across the country regarding all law enforcement agencies. Over the last several months, and after numerous investigations, we have learned that these negative headlines did not tell the whole story but rather painted a picture designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Law Matters wants you to hear all the facts so you can decide for yourself. As these investigations conclude, these stories will be featured on our Truth Matters page on lawmatters1030.org website. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning. I want to remind everybody today is El Tour de Tucson. If you're driving around, there's something like 8,000 bicyclists out there taking over the area. Please watch for the bikes and be careful. Plan ahead, maybe plan a little extra time. I have John Lovett, captain of TPD Counter Narcotics in the studio with me, and I'm going to introduce him to who's on the phone, Dr. John Sullivan, retired lieutenant from L.A. County Sheriff's Department, who's also the co-founder of Terrorism's Early Warning Program. John, meet John. Good to meet you, John. Hey, likewise. Uh, great to talk to you, Captain. Okay, I... I understand that there's uh, something going on with the China Police Department, and I would really like to hear more about this story. Can you enlighten us? Yeah, sure. Um, in mid-September of this year, a uh, Spanish NGO um, put out put out a report talking about overseas Chinese police initiatives. Uh, the NGO called Safeguard Defenders identified fifty over fifty four. Uh, roughly 54 um, what they call overseas uh, Chinese overseas police service centers. Now they're not technically police the police uh, you know sanctioned police liaison entities like most nations have you know police liaison programs like the FBI's legal attaches um, operate you know throughout throughout the world with the permission of the government. NYPD operates around the world with the permission of the host government. Uh, these have been set up informally. Um, they're really a tool of hybrid influence or hybrid warfare, a way to extend Chinese influence uh, globally and, and, and shape the political environment, kind of a tool of uh, unconventional statecraft. Now, this, this entire type of project initially started in 2019, uh, where the Qingtian County Police in Zhejiang Province um, decided they would set up these sensors to do quasi-consular tests, not going through the normal consular and diplomatic process, but set them up to ostensibly assist Chinese nationals. Um, the people that are critical of this point out that these um, so-called secret police stations have been involved in the forced repatriation or extraordinary rendition of up to 230,000 overseas Chinese. So basically the Chinese are pushing their presence forward to uh, shape the overseas diaspora community, which they don't believe that when people leave China, they stop being Chinese citizens. They don't believe in dual citizenship. They have their kind of hegemonic view of the world. Um, Just this Thursday, Chris Ray, the uh, director of the FBI, pointed out that he was concerned of the presence of uh, such a station here in, in New York City. Um, I mean, I, I'll point out that they've documented thus far um, 
overseas police service centers in in New York, Toronto, with up to three centers itself, Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo, Buenos Aires, uh, London, Amsterdam, um, throughout, you know, Barcelona, Florence. In Ireland, the uh, Irish government has asked for them to close it down. The Netherlands government is investigating it. There's 14 um, nations investigating the presence of uh, these unsanctioned uh, police liaison programs. I think the bottom line is these overseas uh, presence are, you can ask yourself, is this police diplomacy, which is legitimate, and all states engage in it? Um, I myself have. I've traveled to Sri Lanka uh, to, to consult with the police there. I've had in my task force in Los Angeles, had Australian Federal Police and French National Police and RCMP uh, participate in a task force with ongoing relations. We all do that. But when you do it without the, pre- the sanction of the government and you do questionable acts, in fact, in New York earlier this month there was a federal prosecution looking at the kind of forced repatriation. So that's kind of an issue that we should look at. Um, there are, I should point out, legitimate reasons for police liaison. This does not appear to be that. The other notable thing I'll point out, they're not using the Chinese National Police, the, the you know, people over, people's armed police. They're using local municipal police from the majority of these stations are run by uh, the Quintian Police, which I talked about earlier, and... Um, you know, the Beijing municipal police have engaged in similar activities, and the Fuzhou police are, are another. What these places do is they act as intelligent out, intelligence outposts. They take tips from the members of the diaspora community. They perform open-source intelligence collection. Um, the Chinese government pushes back against all of these allegations and say they're just doing normal consular operations um, but why you wouldn't do that through the established network of, you know, consuls general is uh, is kind of questionable. Yeah, I'll get permission to be here. There's a lot of discussion about this in the open source, and because this is a hybrid influence operation, um, and hybrid, uh, you know, influence operations are part of hybrid warfare. The Chinese call this unrestricted warfare. Well, they will use all instruments of the national. Uh, state of the community to push forward their influence. In some places beyond these informal stations, they've engaged in joint patrols, which are sanctioned with some of the um, states like Italy, uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, they are providing police training and assistance, which I'll point out that all nations do. But in places like the Solomon Islands, they are displaced Australian presence uh Commonwealth presence and appear to be using this as a kind of lever to uh, build their kind of what they call these type of operations. The Chinese Communist Party calls them United Front Operations. So they're basically hybrid influence initiatives and they compete with efforts to forge, you know, support um, and their rivals would be people like the, uh, like NATO and the uh, Five Eyes Alliances. Um, They exploit disinformation, corruption, and um, in, in the broader sense, the illicit e- economic flows. So there is a nexus, perhaps, with organized crime. Um, so very, very complicated. It's controversial. Um, as I mentioned just the other day, uh, the FBI pointed out they have a significant interest. The Chinese government is pushing back against it. Um, and like any hybrid information operation, 
warfare situation. Um, can you they, they can you tell us what does NGO stand for? Non-governmental organization. Okay, so the listeners understand that you know oh, yeah. this is, and apparently they're they're here. They weren't invited here. They didn't they didn't consult to you know hey can we come over there and set up a, a quasi police department for China? Is yeah, well, well, that's that that's the case, and the FBI is investigating that, and we'll see what violations of U.S. and or international law exist. Um, the question is, are they, as I pointed out, are they diplomacy or are they covert operations? Right, and, hide in plain sight. So, I, I, yeah. John, I uh, don't mean to interrupt, but i got to say that I've had a lot of experience with the State Department's International Visitors Program. I'm sure you're familiar with it, and it's yes. essentially a sanctioned version of that. Yes. And uh, Chinese um, officials from law enforcement have been visiting here for more than 20 years uh, with... Uh, operations across the country and particularly here in tucson arizona and looking at our training years ago and just an an example of why that program is so good um they have as you know a very sophisticated uh, training system for new police officers takes about two years equivalent to a community college experience here but probably more intense uh and uh, when they were here we had a discussion with uh, the leaders of that operation about the value of including things besides police science in their education trying to give them you know an idea of the value of the humanities and they didn't understand and said well you know i don't see why that would really work for police but about six months later the director of their academy which trains something like two million police officers a year is this huge number sent us a note back saying we've introduced Chinese art history to our curriculum and uh, they think it's they're very excited about how that seems to you know help them and and you know the value of that Um, but I can say that uh, anything they're doing off the books of course is always the spy versus spy game or or something short of that and you know the FBI is really really good at counter espionage and so um, it's great that it's on, on your radar and now others as well um, but I really think we need to double down on the legitimate um, practice that we've been doing in the last 40 years of trying to spread democracy through you know, example. And well, uh, I think you make a valid point, Captain. The, the deal is um, hybrid warfare, hybrid influence is all about mixing legitimate and illegitimate means. You know, that's, you know, statecraft, police liaison. I've, I've participated in those missions. I've trained foreign cops. Um, I've also worked on the JTTF with the FBI. I'm familiar with their their thing. I spent you know two thirds of my you know forty year career doing counterterrorism. Um, we all states use legitimate tradecraft. The NATO's Partnership for Peace um, is an example of doing defense to defense cooperation. What's unique here is the blend of legitimate activity with illegitimate act- activity to shape the environment and have plausible deniability. So, so you, they're really you know, of course, they're using police to extend influence through training and assistance. We do, the Brits do, the Australians do. But when you add in other sub, you know, you know, sublegal means or questionable means to shape it, it goes beyond the normal normal course. So, yes, part of it's statecraft, part of it's normal di- diplomacy, part of it's covert operations and intelligence. No, no, no question, and it's it's a good point that we should. Always be vigilant and looking for those kinds of uh, issues in what we do. And really, I, again, I'd say double down on the legitimate oh, stuff I just agree. to drown out the stuff that's not. You know, Tucson oh, had a, 
Tucson had one of the leaders of the Tiananmen Square uprising here as an astrophysicist afterwards. So we had an outsized Chinese intelligence presence in the Tucson area for 30 years. He died recently, and when he did, uh, they sort of left with him. Or maybe, they, you know, they, I'm sure they're still involved. We had a significant uh, Chinese uh, diaspora here that does uh, science at the University of Arizona. So the, I, I just say that, uh, you know, even though we're out here in the middle of the desert, far from everything else, it's been something that's been on our radar for a very long time. No, I hear you. You know what? Um, in the second of the series of papers I wrote on this um, just recently, I point out that efforts to counter their police influence operations can include expanded international law enforcement training by the U.S., the European Union, and NATO. Uh, and I gave the example of the uh, NATO Stability Policing Center of Excellence um, in, in Italy, which is a great way of bringing democratic values. The interesting thing here is the Chinese are spreading their version of, of governance, which is not necessarily democratic in any fashion we'd recognize. That's true. So true. Well, I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. It's kind of creepy. I just came back from New York. I didn't see him. I would have uh, told you if I saw him. <laughs> thank you for I just your got f- back from New York uh, last night, so oh. it, it was enjoyable to go back home. Yeah, well, thank you very much for 40 years in law enforcement. That's quite an accomplishment. I'm retiring in a month, and that's about what I've got in, so... Well, Captain, congratulations on your retirement. You'll find it's exciting, um, but I'll tell you personally, I missed the job. We, both you and I have had the, one of the best jobs you could have in the world, yeah. uh, more more fascinating than most people realize. For sure. So I, I congratulate you on your retirement as well. Thank you. Thank you, John. I appreciate you calling in. Okay. Have okay. a great day. You too. Take care. So, what do you think about that? What What do you suppose they're doing if it's not just up front and let's well, teach each other yeah i mean he's probably right that there's a blend of stuff that's legitimate and stuff that isn't but i mean that's true with uh, all countries efforts around the world i mean the idea of spycraft's been around for ever ever right and and it's it's those folks that uh, do those kinds of uh jobs that you know really really uh have a multiplier effect for the effectiveness of other kinds of displo- diplomacy or warfare if it's if it's that kind of situation so it doesn't surprise me and and he's right that we should always pay attention to that uh and i will say that you know the the again over the last 40 years the cooperation between agencies in the united states has improved just dramatically um you know the fbi's counterterrorism folks and counter espionage folks you know, we've had the opportunity to work together uh, for a long time, and, you know, it was absolutely unbelievable that the three-letter intelligence agencies would would talk to any local law enforcement folks years ago, and they certainly do now. Yeah. And so we all know each other, we all talk to each other, and um, there's some real value to that, and it's helped us, uh, I think, deal with threats as they emerge, and, and when something bad happens... Or something noteworthy happens, we're not meeting for the first time out at a crime scene or uh, in response to that. We know each other and we're able to work with each other and it's been very effective, I think. Yeah, sharing information. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk to you about, obviously, your counter-narcotics. I want to talk to you about these colorful pills that have been coming across the border have you guys found any? Have you been... Yeah, we were of the first, actually, to find them. Uh, August 7th, I think, we did a press release, um, or actually did a, a, a news story on our discovery of some of the first colored pills. 
um, at least in, in the United States, actually. Because, of course, you know, most of these pills do come through the Tucson sector of the Border Patrol. And it's not, by the way, um, out in the middle of nowhere where you see all the political candidates walking with cowboy hats. It's through the ports of entry. <laughs> Getting it's their through, picture taken. <laughs> exactly. Those, they've worn out the, the trails in front of the fence. Uh, it's, it's through the ports of entry in their body carriers or trucks. There's you know, any way you can imagine they, they're bringing these pills across. And um, it's huge port seizures recently of colored pills. But still, they comprise less than uh, 10% of what we're seizing. And it, you know, in talking to the people that we end up arresting that are using or selling these drugs, they're really most concerned about getting just the regular blue counterfeit M30 pills. That's what they want to get. So if they, um, the people that are marketing fentanyl pills in general, there's, you know, maybe say there's two big suppliers in Mexico of pills or maybe a few more. And then there's 20 different uh, people who find ways to push them across the border. You know, everyone's trying to find a new way, a new hook to try to get people interested in their brand and if you color them and they look a little different then people can ascribe you know these great uh qualities to whatever brand it is whether or not they're true uh you know i heard oh they said the yellow ones are more powerful that's like green m&ms do you know what so <laughs> i mean we haven't seen any evidence yet that any one pill is better or worse than the next we know they're all dangerous they're all killers um, and then there's a whole theory that's been pushed out by a lot of my colleagues and peers, and I don't, I don't mean to detract from what they have to say. I don't think any of these are designed to sell to children like Joe Camel was designed to sell tobacco to young kids or younger people. I think the issue, though, is they are more attractive to people. They are to me. I mean, I look at a pile of these colored pills and I go like, wow, do you, feel like you want to grab, grab a handful? <laughs> and any, any, anyone could be killed by one of those pills. So... There's, it is an enhanced level of danger. It's increased awareness, I think, about the fentanyl pill problem because the media has been uh, often, some of them very good at keeping people informed about fentanyl issues, but the story just dries out after a while when it's just overdose death after overdose death, poisoning after poisoning after poisoning. You know, uh, And so when there's a new twist, when they say, oh, it's an elephant this or that, or it's a now we found it, you know, built into Lego blocks. People are interested again. And so maybe it's good that that raises the level of awareness because when the level of awareness goes up, we know more people can seek treatment and treatment's available, effective, effective and affordable today. Um, so uh, it's a two-edged sword. I mean, I certainly don't want anyone um, thinking these colored pills are anything other than what they are, and that's absolute poison. And if you take one, it may kill you. And it's got a high likelihood if you're young. Yeah, it's playing Russian roulette with pills instead of a gun. Right. It's crazy. Um, we have a lot of people in, in Tucson that seem to be addicted to drugs and homeless. What what do you think the solution is? Because in my mind, if, if somebody is strung out on, on drugs, they're a danger to themselves. They should be put someplace maybe locked up until they're not on drugs anymore or something. I don't know. What's the solution? So, you know, when I say this, know that I don't mean to alienate people who disagree with what I'm about to say because there are lots of, of folks out there in the fight that have different views about how this should happen. But, I mean, I've, I've been since 1982 out there dealing with the issues of what happened when we all got together in a bipartisan way and flushed out the mental institutions into the street right. and put people totally helpless out there and... 
So I've dealt with that now for my entire career, and I see some parallels. And I think probably the biggest is that somehow we think it's okay to tolerate the situation where we literally have zombies in the streets, running, getting run over by cars. And and somehow I remember that when with what they called then the homeless issue of letting them live in a, in a burnt out landfill full of toxic chemicals. I mean, I, I can tell you that as a society we can do a lot better than what we're doing. Now, with mental health issues, I think we have gotten better. And in Arizona, oddly, and we're very progressive and and done some really good things when it comes to dealing with people with serious mental illness. The problem is when you overlay a substance abuse problem on top of that, alcohol or other drugs, um, it's really hard to get the diagnosis of the mental health uh, accomplished because they don't generally do an evaluation while people are under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And so these folks sort of fall through the system. And the system has to do with Title 36 and Arizona revised statutes. And it allows, under certain circumstances, for the court-ordered treatment of people with mental health problems. And uh, I know that some people think that's not appropriate, but I think most people agree today it helps with people who are what we call gravely disabled and people who are a danger to self and others. I can say the same thing about someone who's using, uh, um, misusing narcotics uh, and is now wandering in the street, there's certainly danger to themselves and, uh, frankly, danger to others as well when they're doing that. Uh, but we can't apply the same Title 36 rules because it's a drug issue and not a mental health issue. But, again, I'm not a doctor, um, but i got a lot of practical experience with this. And I'll say that I would bet at least 80, maybe 90% of the people with substance use um, disorder to the degree that they end up in that situation, they have an underlying diagnosis of mental illness. And I would bet if you could get them sober enough to be evaluated, I would bet you'd find they are gravely disabled or dangerous to self or others because of a mental health issue. So the work really is going to be working on Title 36 to force those kinds of evaluations. And I just don't see, you know, they're, they're, I don't want to make the arguments that people do against that because that's their argument to make. But I'd say they make some legitimate arguments. I'm not you know, I'm not, uh, obviously, if I was 100% right, it would have already happened. Everyone would have agreed. But it's it's going to be a very difficult not to crack because of the entrenched positions people have in what treatment should look like. Um, I, I just, I can tell you that what we're doing ain't working, and it's getting worse. And, you know, throwing houses, I, I believe in housing first. People need to be in housing as part of their treatment program. But I got to tell you, Throwing houses at people who want to live under the bridge at Grant and I-10 is just not working. I don't see it happening. And we keep wanting to call it something other than what it is. And it's it's a drug and mental health problem. That's what it is. And housing is part of the issue, but it's not the issue. So, Yeah, and I think, you know, ever since, like you said, Carter administration it decided that mental health shouldn't be a federal thing it should be a state thing and then reagan signed it and now there's no state thing going on there's no funding apparently well there's there's actually funding now see that's what's really funny about this because you and i grew up in an era we watched that happen but if you walk to the kodak center of excellence at 380s fort lowell today they will get you treatment you know and and they will and it's affordable and it's so it's like the passage of the Affordable Care Act made this enormous amount of money available to deal with substance use disorder in ways that we we couldn't. I can't even get my arms around it today. I mean, I, I you know, wrap my head around it alone. I mean, it's it's a very complicated path. But 
because we all believe, I mean, and we make a lot of decisions, you know, when we're at this station in life, we all believe that, oh, inpatient treatment. Well, you know, most of the treatments they do that's successful or a lot of it, I don't, again, I'm not a doctor, but a lot of it is outpatient. People, you know, one of the things that the barriers to treatment has always been, well, I, I can't leave my kids. I can't leave my dog. I can't leave my house. My plants will die. Practical things. My mother needs me. All these different things that go through someone's head about getting treatment because they imagine it like you and I do. And that is 28 days in a bed in a hospital. And, you Locked know, up in right, a room. Exactly. Yeah. It's not that. It's not that anymore. And so we need to get that across and we need to get people engaged in treatment across the board. All of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few. Daylight is fading and the temperature is dropping. You're not only cold, hungry, and lost in a densely wooded area, you're injured. Time is of the essence. Sarsi is a highly trained team of dedicated volunteers who work closely with Pima County Search and Rescue to help people in critical situations just like this. To join an exclusive team of heroes, go to sarsi.org. That's S-A-R-C-I dot org. We need your knowledge, experience, and of course, your generous spirit. To report suspected human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center at 1-888-373-7888 or text HELP or INFO to 233-733. To learn more about Homeland Security investigations and our efforts to combat human trafficking, please visit our website at www.ice.gov or check out the DHS Blue Campaign at www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. For more information on the Southern Arizona Anti-Trafficking Unified Response Network, please visit us at www.saturn.org or find us on Facebook. Saving lives means staying informed. Knowing the dangers of using counterfeit prescription pills can help those you care about and keep our community safe. As a parent, educator, neighbor, or friend, we all play a role in building safe and healthy futures for ourselves and our loved ones. Do your part. Take the first step today. Visit GetSmartAboutDrugs.com to access education, prevention, and treatment resources. Counterfeit prescription pills laced with fentanyl are deadly. Be their protector. Be informed. Visit GetSmartAboutDrugs.com. Law Matters Live Show opens the lines of communication between you and law enforcement. On our next show, we talk with Desiree from Community Medical Services about drug abuse and rehab options. Have questions? The on-air number is 520-790-2040. And please check out Law Matters Sponsorship page on our new lawmatters1030.org website. Maybe you or a company you know would like to join our mission and keep the conversation going. Law Matters Podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is John Levitt, who is in charge of counter-narcotics here in Tucson, and he's been buying drugs from people legally (laughs) for a long time and doing an amazing job. We've got some really impressive law enforcement here in Tucson, I have to say. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, I listen, I've been around the country and and talked to people from around the world about about different models of law enforcement. And I think we're very lucky and we're lucky because we have so many people who have made the decision to serve as law enforcement officers. And, you know, just a a brief moment about that. When I started, uh, I was a reserve officer. I came in and volunteered and worked uh, about 20 hours a week for a couple of years. And then I I started as a salaried officer in 1985. So I started getting paid to do it in 1985. And I'll say that, uh, you know, the, the folks that, uh, that have just made that decision then did it when 
salaries were really bad. And I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't, you, you give someone a dollar value of what you were getting paid and everyone goes, yeah, but inflation, I get it, but it was not good. Uh, and I, you know, I used to say that we made the same as nurses, teachers, and cops made the same in 1985. And nurses and cops' salaries have certainly gone up. Uh, teachers, unfortunately, were left behind. And I, I still feel guilty about them leaving our little cohort of public servants. Um, but I will say, when I started, people waved at us with one finger. There were not a lot of people that were supportive of law enforcement back in those days. And and I can say that, you know, over the arc of my career, things got pretty good. There was a period of time when, uh, you know, they, the, I think the, the community really in all ways supported us. And uh, a lot of that's still true in Tucson, but around the country, maybe that's waned some. I am often um, just shocked at, uh, you know, how no matter what the tragedy is. I mean, I'll go to, to Korea, for an example, when they had that crush of people in the crowd. Instantly, the world has learned that that must have been a police problem. Why did they let all those people get into that area? Why didn't they have more police officers? And I'm thinking it from the police officer's perspective, like, really? I mean, we want to blame the cops no matter what all the time because they're very easy. And it's always a day or two or three before we... Forget about the horrific actions of an individual or the neglect that they've had for programs in a, in a community, and we blame the cops. So I've seen that increase a lot lately. So we're back to the one finger wave in a lot of <laughs> a lot of areas of the country. True, um, but I will say that uh, police officers, in in my estimation, are not racist. Police officers are service oriented, and I just don't have the experience that so many people. Um, seem to believe they've seen. And, and a lot of the judgment on cops over the years has been based upon people's um, understanding of law enforcement by reading books, great dime store novels you know, years ago, but watching movies and TV, and I have to say it's nothing like that. It's just not like that. That's not the way the world works. We do dope deals all the time. I've never seen um, us do a dope deal that looks anything like what you see on television. It's just not... It's more like Barney Miller. It's not, <laughs> Well, there's some some aspects that are, but but it's you know it's it's just a whole different line of work, and so yeah. it doesn't surprise me, I guess, that people get their impression from the media and from the the fictional account of what we do, uh, and then judge us based on that. You know, and lastly, you know, body cameras are an interesting thing. I'm all for them. Uh, I can tell you that when we first talked about bringing them out, uh, it was a, everyone was really infuriated that they would have to wear a camera. And then within weeks of the deployment of them, people were thrilled to have them. And in fact, I know a lot of cops that say they would not go to work today if they didn't have a body camera on. Yeah. And I, I watched um, a, a person that really supported the idea of rolling out body cameras for police accountability, uh, say on a TV program as a talking head. It's terrible. They're taking these cameras and they're using them against us. Well, that was the purpose <laughs> of them when they were developed was to gather evidence. So, I mean, it's... It's been an interesting ride. I can say that you can't, you cannot have a rule of law without enforcement. You cannot have enforcement without allowing the use of force. You cannot uh, use force in some circumstances, even very appropriate force, without looking brutal because the use of force against people looks awful. There have been plenty of cases where I would totally agree with the public's view of what happened of misconduct. Um, no question. I'm not. I'm not forgiving or or endorsing any of that behavior. Uh, but I can tell you, there have been many cases where 
the instant uh, supposition is the cop was racist or the cop was brutal or the cop was this. And all I can say is you got to wait for the investigation to happen. Yes. And, and people don't want to do that. It's like the elections. They don't want to wait for the votes to be counted. They want someone to say something up front. It's like, you know, and and on that issue, when it comes to elections, a bunch of people vote. The votes go into a box. They eventually all get counted and they declare the winner. Okay, that's the way it ought to be. That's called arithmetic. But we try to make it calculus where we go, oh, it's trending this way and it's trending that way. These votes can't change themselves. It's simply a matter of the way they were originally entered. This is not rocket science. This is straight number line arithmetic. Yeah. But we've made it entertainment. And we made law enforcement entertainment. And, news is entertainment. And, and news is entertainment. And everybody has an opinion. Right. And so it's, it's made it very difficult for the people that are out there today. God bless them for going to work every day with uh, limited support. And, uh, you know, again, we, I think, have enjoyed some very good support in Tucson uh, certainly over my career, but I I see our brothers and sisters across the country sometimes struggle. I mean, would you want to go to work in Minneapolis if you're a cop? No. Uh, and then lastly on that issue, you know, uh, we want a diverse workforce. We've been just really doubling down on trying to re- re- uh, recruit underrepresented people to get them to apply. But I guess the question I asked a group of people was, did anyone in your family tell you it was honorable to be a police officer? And it was an underrepresented group. And the person said, well, no. And, but they were all lawyers, by the way. And, and, I, and I, said, <laughs> I said, well, you know, my dad was an atomic physicist, and he told me it was. And I really, I can't help you. You want a diverse workforce, but it's, you're too good to do it. And your kids are too good to do it. Well, then you're going to get something that's not the picture you would imagine. So until people start understanding the requirement that a democracy have the rule of law and the rule of law be enforced by good, strong, ethical law enforcement uh, until they're willing to be part of that, well, then it's going to be a very difficult proposition to accomplish it. I think we've done a lot of great things in law enforcement. It's certainly different than it was when I started in so many positive ways. Um, uh, But it's a tough time, and the folks that are leading us forward now are going to have quite a challenge on their hands. It's unfortunate, but that's so true. And if you listen to the news media, and I don't care what station it is, they want to turn it into a black and white issue, and it's not black and white. This is good versus bad, and you know, good. There's good people in every society, but there's also bad people in every society. And law enforcement overall are really good people, and they want to do the right thing. They're out there risking their life to protect you. We should give them some respect and say thank you. Yeah, and and you know, also don't pass laws you don't want enforced. Right. I mean, <laughs> I, I will tell you uh, on all sides of every issue, there are not just two sides, but several. But I'll, I'll use, you know, of controversial issue. You'll get people who want to increase the number and the kinds of gun laws that we have. And so I'll go, okay, so then, all right. And if, if someone does have an AR-15 and you've made them outlaw, you've outlawed them, what do you want to do with them? Well, I go, do you want us to put them in prison? And they go, well, no. And I look at them and they don't pass the law. I mean, it's like the marijuana differences between state and federal and, and oh, you put all these, you've arrested all these people for marijuana. Well, don't pass the law. Yeah. You can't, I mean, you take 21-year-olds and you give them, you know, a year of training roughly, and they get out there and they have to make complex decisions at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you want them to sit and individually decide on cases where you can't agree on what the right path is as a group of adults but you're going to be damn sure to say that that individual cop is wrong. 
I just think, you know, pass laws that make sense and enforce them. If you don't like the laws, change the laws. Um, and uh, and there's courts to try to rectify what should be laws and what should be laws. It's just, it's really hard when uh, police officers go out there to try to do their job and then have people say, well, you shouldn't have arrested them for just that. Or, you know, you got to take somebody out of a car. I mean, you do a traffic stop on somebody and, and they got a warrant. Okay, for whatever. I mean, okay, that's a judge telling you to take him to jail. That's not your personal choice. That's what yes. the judge says. So they say, no, I'm not getting out of the car. Have you ever tried to take somebody out of a car that's hanging onto a steering wheel? I have, many times. Do you know how awful that looks to the guy that's standing eight feet away with a camera yeah. and taunting you the whole time? I mean, it's it's hard. And so all I would ask is that people try to withhold their judgment for an hour or two or, or a month or whatever it takes to fully and thoroughly investigate allegations of misconduct to understand what the circumstances were where these things occurred. Um, and I think there's been a real slide away from that in the last five years, 10 years. And uh, I'd like to see that, that happen. I mean, it's, I'll be long gone, but I uh, still, my heart will be with the people that are trying to do the work out there to keep us all safe. I was raised to respect law enforcement. And when I started to drive, my dad told me, if you get pulled over, Put your hands on the wheel and don't do do what the law enforcement tells you to do, but don't try to reach for something without permission. Just do what you're told. And it seems like what I see when people are pulled over and they put it on the news, they become combative. They're, you know, arguing. They're and it just it's the polar opposite than everything that I was taught. Well, put yourself in a young person's position today and imagine what they see on TV every day. And then uh, if they're an underrepresented group in in the law enforcement agency or in, in the community, they've pretty much been told that what's going to happen to them is abuse. Right. And so you'll walk up but and you'll say, true. Officer Levitt with the Tucson Police Department, I have stopped you for running a red light and I'd like to see your driver's license, registration, proof of insurance. And the first thing they'll say is, you stop me because I'm, and then enter the category. Right. You know, it could be ASU fan. You saw my bumper sticker. It could be, you don't know what. But, you know, there. The, I guess that is not so new. Um, but uh, then I hear, well, you know, young men of that whatever group you want to mention again, including ASU fans, they, they don't believe, they, they, don't, uh, they don't like authority. They don't like to submit to authority. Well, neither did I. Yeah. You know, no American, and frankly, nobody in the world wants to submit to the authority of another person, generally speaking. And they, they've got reason, I think, to be cautious. I get that. And we try to facilitate those transactions in a way that's that's helpful. Um, there are certainly times when we don't meet the mark, but I got to tell you, you'll get a guy or a gal who 25 years is writing traffic tickets on a motorcycle, and they'll have zero complaints, zero complaints 25 years later. And so we do a pretty good job of it. And the women and men uh, that work out there every day do a very good job of it. Uh, there's nobody I would trust uh, my family members to uh, sight unseen without knowing anything else about them other than they're a law enforcement officer in, in American society. Yeah. So, I mean, I have to tell you, they're great people and we're lucky to have them. Very lucky. And I try to tell people that every day when you see somebody in law enforcement, say thank you. Thank you for your service because they're out there risking their life to protect you. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, but most pe- a lot of people do that, I guess. I should say that. That's true. A lot of people are very nice to us and, and do recognize that. And it's sometimes it, it, 
it's very nice to hear it. Um, but I think probably the most important thing is just convince your family members that it's it's a noble purpose to go and become a police officer and enforce the law and try to do it. Even if it's now, we always try to get people for twenty years, right? I mean, I I've changed my view on that. Let them try it five years because I did it three years as a volunteer, and then I could imagine doing nothing else. I mean, yeah. I, I really, you get the hook in them. I mean, they'll go out and they'll do it, and they'll they'll feel like it's important work, and it is. It important is important. Work. So once people get the sense for what the job is, very few people want to leave. That's really the secret. So don't, don't plan on 20 years. Come do it for five years and see what you think. Yeah, absolutely. And the training is amazing. You'll get into shape. You you have no choice. <laughs> yeah. there's, like, there's all sorts of good things about it. Uh, I just came back from New York about a week or two ago, and... While I was there, I had a great time walking up to various law enforcement. I'd see them on the street, and I'd take their hand, and I'd say, thank you for your service. And the look on their face was hmm. like, what? You can't be from New York. <laughs> and I just did that several times during the one day. I, you know, I was there for, what, two, two or three days? And just to thank them for what they do. And they were stunned. Yeah, and and I, you know, one one of the things that I've been pushing for recently is that because of body worn cameras, we have so many great examples of what we do. It's funny, you know. There are some cops that want to go out and take a picture of themselves handing a pre- present to a kid at Christmas, and they think that's a good thing. I that makes me sick when I see it. it just scares the heck out of me that to think that we have to draw attention to the charitable works that we may or may not be involved in. But politicians, they're, well, they're trying to they're trying to change the public perception, and I guess I get that and I appreciate it, but it's not something I'm comfortable with, but what I am comfortable with, and what I did at a Ward 6 forum that Steve Kozachik ran the other night, is we showed a video of one of our cops doing an Arcan save, and we brought the cop in there, and uh, you know, uh, Eddie Valenzuela is his name, and he's just out on patrol, and this this, this guy overdoses on Oxy and, and dies, and he brings him back to life, and he says... He, it, it was so representative of my experience in law enforcement, his conversation with this guy who had just died, whose life he was, was saved by a police officer. And it was such a proud moment. And we've got hundreds of those videos. Yeah. And, you know, Tempe just did a, uh, a study in Tempe. Um, actually, they provided information for a study, I think Arizona State did, on body-borne camera usage and Narcan. Uh, we were the first adopters in Arizona, and it's the Tucson Police Department. But they did a study to try to combat some of the uh, misinformation about Narcan and police officers. And 83% of the time, their police officers beat the fire department in Tempe to uh, overdose scenes. And they yeah. saved, you know, hundreds of lives as well. So we've got all this video, and I've always said to myself, we ought, we ought to be out pushing those videos out. Um, you know, I, just, I guess maybe it's not news that we're doing that, but... Uh, it certainly casts a different light. People know you do it, but they don't see it happening. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be more impactful to see it happening. And I think you're right. They should push those videos out. And then maybe people would understand why drug abuse is so important and we need to do something about it. You know, there's still the stigma attached. Well, I'm there, I guess rightfully so. That, that We had a, a video that I used uh, to do some community training with where... Um, you couldn't tell who anyone was because we blurred all the faces, but everybody already knew the story. And because they knew the story, they were incensed that we would somehow invade the privacy of these victims who had been had been died and whose lives were saved. And so I get that too. So it's it's just a weird balance. We don't really control what is the information or the narrative about what we do. 
Uh, but I think we can maybe find ways in the future to try to make um, uh, the transparency, of course, is so important. We try to make some areas of what we do more transparent than we have, just so that people will see the the great and work that's done every day by folks. Yeah, I think you're right. And a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that there is a drug problem in Tucson, just like they don't want to acknowledge there's sex trafficking, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we, we do these shows, we have events, we try to educate people. And it's amazing how many people just, you know, they know it's there, but they don't want to acknowledge it's, it. That's even in true in law enforcement, within the law enforcement community. So narcotics enforcement, drug enforcement is a very specialized area. And not all people involved in law enforcement are interested in doing that kind of work. And yeah. I get that. I, there's reasons I wouldn't want to do other kinds of work that we do. But but it's like sometimes if you're not personally touched by something, you don't see all its value. Yeah. And True. so, I mean, I interview everyone that comes and joins the Counter Narcotics Alliance. And I've had the opportunity to hear the stories of why, why, why they do drug uh, enforcement. And virtually everybody has lost a friend or a family member to drug misuse. And that's what gets them over the hump and saying, I'm going to commit my life to doing drug investigations and do the work that we do at Counter Narcotics Alliance. Because it's really, it's not, again, it's not the movies. It's it's it's, it's real. very hard. And they there's an extra level of dedication to do drug law enforcement. A lot of cops don't want to do it. But what I find is about, I mean, several times in the last five, six years that I've been there, we've had, you know, someone who's a family member of a police officer that ends up with a drug problem and, and potentially some of them have been poisoned and died. It's, it's happened. And suddenly this, the, it, 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 they join the club and when they join the club, then they understand. And then, you know, they dedicate their lives to it. So on the one hand, I'm irritated when I don't get what I think is support that I deserve, you know, on a, an, an initiative or operation from other people in the police department or the sheriff's department or the, you know, the DEA, all of our partners, they all work really hard at this. I don't get that support. I, I get disappointed. But then I realize, well, they'll join the club just like everyone else has. And I don't want them to join the club. I, I would almost rather them not understand than understand because understanding means they've been through an experience. It's just horrific. Uh, yeah, so, it is. I've, I've, in fact, next week we're going to have somebody on talking about drug rehab and the resources available and the process to get yourself out of that. And I, I understand it's not easy. And I've, I've been fortunate where I don't know anybody who's been addicted to drugs. So, you know, it, it's a foreign thing to me. And I really had to do a lot of research in order to do next week's show. Well, that's good. And there are some very good treatment alternatives and uh, paths. I mean, some of the paths start in the prison system and come out. And there's a place called Dismas Charities here in town that I'm on the community board for. And we do these routine meetings where we go. They have an enormously successful program. But it's people who self-select who are in prison who say, I want to go through that program. And it's rigorous. Wow. And so they've already made the commitment, you know. And so that's maybe why they're so much more successful than other areas where I've seen it. Because people self-select it. You can't say, hey, my son's coming out of prison. Can I enroll him? He has to, he or has she to has to decide they want to do that. And they do men and women, and they do a phenomenal job. Um, but but I got to say, there's that's true with so many of the different organizations that provide drug treatment. So so is there a time limit, or is does each individual person create their own pr- program, so to speak, 
their own time limit like it's going to take me six months to get better and it only took you six weeks type well thing? i think i think the you you have to go to a program that you trust or have reason to trust and then you have to work with them and they're they're the professionals i mean uh, i uh you know i even though i work with this stuff every day i remember at the beginning of my assignment to to at this level to narcotics uh, and i remember saying well i've taken oxycodone before you know from dental stuff and i and it's never gotten me high and so one of my undercovers looked at me and goes well captain uh did you grind it up and snort it or smoke it <laughs> and of course not right and i didn't know you could do that and so I, so i mean it shows and when it comes to treatments same thing you know i still go back to the 28 day program and all the movies and things you've seen in them walking around in a hospital gown. that's just not that's not reality yeah. and so these treatment programs there some of them are, are just phenomenally successful and when i say that Let's suppose they only they only cure, if you will, a five year you know relapse absence, fifty um, percent. Well, people go, that's no good. Well, yeah, it is because it used to be like ten percent. Yeah, it's and getting so, better. Yeah. <laughs> Medicine assisted treatment um, that's available today has got enormous enormous success improvements, and so they. I think it's building the program that's right for the person in their situation, and there are experts who do that, and, and I'm not one of those. I know if I can get them to the door, there's a good chance they can get the 100 percent chance they'll get treatment, and a good chance they'll be successful, much better than there ever was. Again, again, when I started, you know, back when police cars were made out of wood, I remember <laughs> being assigned to the front desk at 270 South Stone on midnight. So it was really exciting. Um, nothing ever happened, and someone would come up to the window and go, I've, "I'm a heroin addict, and I need treatment." And this is 1982, and I'd go. Uh, well, we can't help you with that. And, you know, now we can. Yeah. And so we should really take full advantage of that. Some states don't use Narcan. They don't give it to their officers to help people who are in, in distress. And I learned that because Minnesota, I asked, we had their uh, Derek Shavens, appeals uh, attorney on the show, and I asked him, do you think Narcan would have helped George Floyd since he had almost four times the lethal limit of drugs in his system and basically why he died and he said well minnesota doesn't use it so lots of people didn't and i know when we did um we were lone rangers in arizona and and so uh arizona family tv invited us to go do a show up there about our narcan program and they really called out the police departments in the phoenix valley for not using it and some of the things that we heard were just i mean some of them just make you cringe. Like you would hear people in the community saying, well, if you use Narcan, you'll just get called back to the same location again. And I'm like, oh, I guess that means you have real respect for human life or not. Uh, I mean, (laughs) it was like, it was horrendous, some of the responses. And then within law enforcement, you know, the same uh, narratives, false narratives got circulated like, well, you know, heat degrades it. You carry it in a patrol car, it won't work. Well, I can show you a video where heat degraded Narcan saved the lives of a 16-year-old girl. I can show you that. Uh, besides that, cops, if they carry it on their body like they should, they uh, generally find a way to keep from degrading from the heat themselves, and that helps the Narcan survive. And we can give them new Narcan, and we do. And so uh, police officers in Tucson have been very receptive to it. They want to do it. They want to save people's lives. They've done it hundreds of times now. Uh, but then fire departments were really reluctant. They would say, well, we're the first responder. No, they're not. Anyone that's been uh, in the streets at a shooting. They or, know. Please get there first. <laughs> well, right. Well, they do get dispatched to some things first, and they should. I mean, they, they, I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying that they saved many more people with Narcan than we have in the last five years. 
And it's true, they're very good at it, and they've been doing it for years. I watched my first Narcan save in the early 90s. So they've been doing it for a long time, and they're very good at it. But I don't think even they realized at, at the time that that being their first, and you know, in our videos, you can watch the five, six, seven minutes tick by waiting for a paramedic response. Yeah. And it makes a difference. It saves people's lives. And now today, they're completely supportive. And when I say I generalize, you know, there are a lot of firefighters and paramedics that understood that we should have Narcan. There are just a few people who didn't, and and again, my age, you know, I mean, making decisions about something that's really foreign to us. So I, I uh, will tell you, we did finally um, succeed in evangelizing the Narcan program around the state, and now everyone carries it as far as I know. Uh, and, and in other states, if they don't, well, then I guess that's how they feel about people's lives. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. So there was an open order, so anybody could walk in and ask for... Narcan. Good, good point. Thank you for bringing that up because you can walk into the Pima County Sheriff's, or excuse me, the Pima County Health Department right now, and they'll hand you Narcan. They uh, came to our forum the other night and passed out boxes of Narcan. And you, you go, well, I don't have anyone in my family. No, but you may have a neighbor, or some kid may pick up a pill on the street and take it out in front of your house, yeah, or in your business. Pills. In your business, you have a fire extinguisher. You might even have an AED. You should have Narcan in your business. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't know, and it's not all, I mean, drug use is not all nefarious. It's accidental overdoses happen. Having Every Narcan day. is, yeah, it's really, really an important tool for everyone to have in their, in their arsenal of stuff to protect people. Absolutely. So, okay. Do they have to pay for it if they go and get it? Uh, it's a health department. They don't, I don't, I'm not sure everywhere else. I know there's a standing prescription that where pharmacists are supposed to provide it to you. They might charge you for it. If you have health insurance, they might charge your health insurance for it. I don't really understand how that part works. Cause, uh, you know, there's Sonoran prevention works is another organization that provides Narcan. Uh, there's a thousand different ways to get it. And, and, uh, and I suspect if you asked a police officer in the street, they'd give you their Narcan. Where's um, where's the um, health department located? Uh, on Ajo, not uh, not far from the studios. Uh, oh, okay. It's uh, right by uh, uh, the Kino Hospital, and okay. so it's a huge, huge uh, Abrams. I think is the name of the building. It's a monstrous building, and but they they uh, are unbelievable. Uh, that's another thing I got to say is I've been around the country talking about drugs for a long time, and I can tell you that nobody has a better health department than Pima County. They are so responsive and. Uh, they produce information real time that you can't get two years later from other health departments. Even in the state, when we talk about overdoses and things like that, they are so far ahead of everybody else. And it's a hidden gem. I mean, I was telling the director there who's, you know, directors and bosses like me and others come and go, but the people that do the work there, they're just astonishing how, how high quality it is and what great people they are. I want to thank you for coming on the show. I want to thank you for 40 years of service. You're amazing. We're going to be losing an amazing man when you retire. That makes me sad, but I'm happy for you. And until next week, shop local, stay safe, and watch for the bicycles. They're everywhere.
No Matters Live show opens the lines of communication between you and law enforcement. On our next show, we talk with Desiree from Community Medical Services about drug abuse and rehab options. Have questions? The on-air number is 520-790-2040. And please check out Law Matters sponsorship page on our new lawmatters1030.org website. Maybe you or a company you know would like to join our mission and keep the conversation going. Law Matters podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org.